welcome to What in the World Language Podcast. I'm here today with Cecilia Tolliver. Um, so, Ms. Tolliver, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Um, I like to think a lot of our grading practices uh, in K through 12 classrooms and how they perpetuate the historical inequities that are woven into our schools, leaving room for teachers to give grades for such things as participation, effort without taking into consideration the possible implicit biases and the lack of cultural understanding needed to grade on such a scale. So, as you know, our school has within the last three years implemented mastery grading Mm -hmm. or standards-based grading. And as a lead teacher here at our school, you have led staff PD on this transition. So, the first question I'd like to ask you We'll go ahead and jump into it here. Is uh, how do you see this type of grading as being more equitable for students, and especially for students of color? Mastery grading. Uh, I think it's mastery grading is nothing but equity. Um, you take out what we call grade fog. You take out all the things for I brought in tissues, you brought in canned goods because it's Thanksgiving, you brought in, um, you participated well today, let me check that off for you. You looked like you had your head down for a little while, I'm not checking that off for you. So mastery grading eliminates all of that. You, It's more about how the kid can perform. And it also understands that you may not get it the first go round. And so mastery grading is about feedback from the teacher and allowing the student to go back and reassess and look at the stuff that they didn't get the first time after the teachers provided them enough reteaching and feedback on how they did. And so it's a constant effort to meet them where they're at. And so for me, that's a huge piece of equity because students don't all come in at the same place. And we know that. And unfortunately in education, it's all, always been where we assume they should be at this point when they come in, they should know this, they should expose right, to this. Right. And it's not that way. Yeah. And they also, you know, we think they should be, at, be able to do this by the end. And not everybody can do that in a one and done situation, which Mm-mm. is traditional teaching. And so mastery forces people to have to reassess and go back and allow students the extra time that they may need to grasp something without padding it. Right, like so you said, speak. bringing that can of food in, you can get some extra credit. Yeah, and you know, and, and a lot of teachers didn't realize that how unequitable that is. If you are a family of low socioeconomic standing, you can't afford to bring in those cans. Right. So even if you had it at home, not that's not that. what you're going to bring, and so they're not going to get that free hundred versus somebody that's like, oh yeah, it's just another can of green beans. Right. And so you know, people don't look at it. Too many people focus on just the grade aspect of. Oh, it's only test. Oh, how is that? But it's the whole bigger picture. And it's the idea of allowing them to show what they know and to redo to show what they know. And I do it based on a science background. Like science has proven that it takes 18 to 24 exposures to something or are able to try something before you can master it. Mm. And and education is built on one and done traditionally. Just move on. And so, yeah. So the idea is we're trying to... Yeah, we're trying to bridge that, and so I think it's nothing but equity as far as implementing mastery. So help us see that, because, you know, Ms. Tolliver, you are a science teacher here, and this is a language podcast, but (laughs) uh, we are talking about equitable practices. Um, How does that look in your classroom? Like, walk us through it. How does does mastery grading work in in your classroom? So for me, you know, it's, I still I still have my activities, I still have my labs, but I am conscious of um, chunking them and making them smaller 
little bits and built into notes. And so there's some teaching and there's some guided practice and then there's some independent where I get immediate feedback. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's, you know, it's still all the same that I've done before I was in mastery, but instead of a whole worksheet, it may be a broke cut up and broken into like three different pieces. Mm -hmm. And I'm implementing that at three different times, trying to get feedback and seeing, okay, do I, can I go on from here or do I need to loop that back? You know, as a whole class, did you get, or is it just this little section? And I also make sure I have things in the, you know, stash to the side. So if half of them didn't get what I just did, other half can extend and have mm-hmm. an extension of something while I reteach this real quick. And then everybody can collectively go to the next piece. So for me, it was a different layout for my classroom and not so much of lecture practice and that being like a big long section of lecture and then a big section of practice, but instead small chunks, small parts of lecture, small chunks of practice followed by again and then repeating over and over and over. So you're, you're essentially what you're saying is you're giving the students the opportunity to work with the material over a period of time as opposed to what you said one one lump thing yeah and done and move on to the next thing and breaking it into pieces so if something i know builds i'm making sure that the builded pieces have the foundation is set instead of traditionally people would have done that lecture all together and right. then they would have had something that implemented it all together instead i'm chunking into pieces and making sure that they got the two plus the three in order to get to the five right so, so do you have you found, have you discovered since we've implemented um, mastery grading here that your students are showing mastery, are performing? So for our listeners, we, we teach in a Title I school, right? Uh, and we talk about the equitable aspect um, of mastery grading. Um, what are the results you see? And it's what, this is our third, fourth year? Fourth implementing? year. Um, mastery so well for the ones that are willing to um, buy in and, and go with it some are still kicking and screaming and you got to constantly prod them and get them to come do the reteach and the retake and get them to take the second time and the third time and the fourth time but the ones that have bought in they're building perseverance and they're they're getting an understanding that it's okay that I didn't pass the first time that failure instead of them just being like oh I failed again let's keep on going and, and never feeling good about themselves they're right. actually getting to triumph and actually battle and and they get excited when they finally hit the perseverance they get excited when they get their name on the board right you know for hitting the mastery and so it's it i feel like it's building work right yeah it's building self-reliance inside of them and perseverance within them to keep trying and to keep at something even when it's hard whereas we've kind of just been pulling them along and be like, it's okay. Don't worry about that. You failed that. Let's go to the next thing. Let's do the next and, thing. Right. Instead, right. it's Try getting to get them to go back. food in here. Right. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> it's getting up. them to go back and actually own it. It's getting them to have some self-ownership into wanting to complete it and wanting to make it and wanting to be on that board. Right. Right. So that it's you, what you're saying is you, you see the students – buy into the process not all of them not all but the ones that do you see the big difference and and they feel the reward yes they feel the reward and you see the confidence building in them and you see them checking themselves and even during tests they'll be like oh like a young lady yesterday we were taking a a test in chemistry on chemical reactions and stoichiometry and she's about halfway through a test and she stopped and she's like i'm coming to see you after break i've got to redo the stoichiometry stuff i'll be here I'm, I'm not getting right. it. I already know. And I'm like, it's all right. Go through. But, you know, they're, they're checking themselves. They know. And they're like, all right, I'm going to finish this, but I know I need to come. And so, you know, they're building that. And I think that's going to help them in their future as far as jobs and, and careers and stuff as well. Right. Because 
you know, you're you're instilling in kids that failure is really not an option. And if it yeah. happens, it's right, just part of learning. It's part of learning. Like you just you gotta know, move. You just gotta build on it. You, gotta you fix mentioned it earlier when when in, in past grading systems where you know if you fail a test, then well, well, you know, and then you just move on. You don't really get to revisit that content again. Right. And practice it again. And then think about if that next unit deals with that content. <laughs> you're going to well, take you another don't F. Have the previous. <sighs> yeah, you, you're already so, behind. So that's an equity part, right? Mm-hmm. Is you rebuilding, making sure students have these structures. What does differentiation? Could you speak a little bit on that? Look like in mastery grading, like how is that equitable? How are we differentiating for our students in our classrooms? Well, what your students need is based off of your data that you collect. It's your feedback. It's mm-hmm. your. You need to constantly you know, like formally assess and little little checks and balances and so who needs what and who doesn't need this you know, like you have to take into account and then you move forward based on that right and so pretty much mastery is based on nothing but data and feedback which creates differentiation of its own what i do for one student for reteaching is not necessarily what i'm going to do for another student for reteaching it depends mm-hmm. on what their data shows it depends on what they need once they everybody has to do a breakdown for me which is where they have to explain why the answer was the answer to the problem and that begins my bridge and so once you do the breakdown the pieces that i see when i'm reading what you've written and things that you come in contact with while you do it that'll take us to our next step and so everybody's reteaching, everybody's assessment is going to be slightly different mm-hmm. within. But they're going to reach that mastery standard by the end of the process, hopefully. Right? That's the idea. Or they get the opportunity to, to demonstrate mm-hmm. mastery at the end of that process. So I enjoy, I enjoy mastery grading. And we have, you know, actual standards in foreign language where the students have to do... Um, they have to show what they can do with the language. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? As opposed to, you know, traditional grading practices um, here, conjugate these verbs mm-hmm. and be done. Which is perfect. I mean, and mastery allows you to assess in different ways. And that's right. one thing that some people struggle with. They think that, okay, well, if we're only taking test scores, I got to do it as a test. Well, no, it can be a lab. It can be a speaking situation. It can be, you know, a reading or something they have to create. It's, but as long as it fits the standards. And so that's perfect for because they, you guys have probably already been practicing it in language and didn't right, even right. know it or call it mastery because if they don't get the speaking right, you go back, you work on it, and then they get to try you it go again. Because I can remember doing that in French class in yeah. high school and having to redo my speaking parts. Right. You know, so, yeah. you know, we've had it built in. We just didn't have the title on it in things. Well, some people just refuse to move along with it, right? Yeah. So. But I love that. I love I can statements. I want my students to be able to say, yes, I can do this, either by the end of the day or by the end of the unit, um, whatever we're teaching. Um, So moving forward a little bit, you know, here at Carver, you know, we have recently implemented um, culturally and linguistically responsive PD. We've been giving our teachers some PD on this, which is long overdue, but (laughs) we we appreciate it. Um, One of the uh, areas we try to focus on is uh, classroom management and what that looks like in a a culturally and linguistically responsive classroom. You know, it all takes like a mind shift in how we approach our students. Um, And as a veteran teacher here at our school, how important do you think implementing this training school-wide is here at Carver and should more schools in our district consider it? I definitely think more schools should consider it. And for us here, for me, it's, you know, 
getting people to realize who are you teaching and understanding that, you know, what they are accustomed to or how they learn best may not be the picture you have in your head. And so the piece of classroom management is getting to know your students mm-hmm. and, and not being combative or, or blow up over something that for them is a normal everyday thing. And so understanding the differences in one culture to another, one generation to another, one socioeconomic status to another, and what's valued and what's not, can play a huge part in how you deal with and control your classroom and the ease with which you can control your classroom. Mm. So you're, you know, it's like you mentioned at the beginning, I had a friend of mine on this podcast uh, several months ago he always prefaces his, his conferences with, can you see who's walking in the room, right? And yeah. really, if you break that apart, if you unpack that, it's like, are you building relationships? Are yeah. you acknowledging the different students in your room? And that's part of that culturally responsive teaching, right? Yep. What do, you want to walk us through what that looks like in your room, like um, your experience with implementing this? Um, since we started a couple years ago, it's about our second year mm-hmm. school-wide implementing culturally and linguistically responsive teaching? I think for me, it's a little bit easier to implement things as far as classroom management, because I'm not, I have a general way of how I want my classroom to be, but I'm not a strict rule person. I'm not, you have to do this, you have to do that. It's not going to be this. I'm more into let the class come in. Let's see how it goes. You know, in general, you're going to respect me. I'm going to respect you. You're going to respect each other. So just basic rules is how I got my classroom. Right. You know, and, and that's how we deal with the management. And then the different, like a big thing culture-wise that I some people have a hard time with is the cursing. And so it's not so much I don't flip out and freak out and you can't do that. I, I remind them and reprimand them, and it's, you know, proper place, proper time. We got we to gotta choose and we got to teach without accosting right, and, right. and being completely offended. I can't believe you said that. Oh, my God. <sighs> oh. And that's, it's, that's a cultural difference I'm that some have offended. to embrace, and they didn't mean to offend. It wasn't meant to be that way. So what you're saying is you're not going to send that student out. If they no, say, I'm not going to throw that student out. Word, they're like, right. damn it, I dropped my pencil or whatever, right? And you're like, oh, my God. I'm going to say, say their name again. and I'll be like, hey, you know, cursing, come on. Mother. Proper place, proper time. And it was teaching them skills that can benefit their life without accosting them and taking them away from their education. I think a lot of times, um, especially white teachers like ourselves who teach in predominantly African-American, um, Hispanic schools tend to look at our students through a deficit lens um, and, and have these really um, zero tolerance policies in their classrooms. <sighs> um I'm glad to hear you don't have that. And I can't do the zero tolerance. It's too many things from day to day. It's too much stuff that, you. I mean, you're dealing with teenage kids that are going through puberty and hormones everywhere and all sorts of family situations and different things at home and just societal and all the, the pushes and the pr- bullying and just all the aspect of social media and how it can alter them within a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a lot to deal with and you can't be rigid. You've got to be able to adjust and fly with them no matter what comes in your door that day. You know, and you, and we, j- people joke all the time when you see it on social media about teachers are therapists and counselors and, and yeah, you really are. Right. Because at the end of the day, if you want them to learn something, you're going to have to get them back to a state of mind where Learning matters, and some days that may not be. That may not be. It may not be. If they're worried about where they're going to stay tonight and where they're living and and 
what they're going to eat, it's hard to focus on. They're not thinking about how to uh, balance a chemical reaction, right? Or how to, you know, how to like talk about what I did how this to, past weekend in my language class. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to talk about what I did last weekend because I don't want to share that with you. And you know, you can have it like me personally. We do weekend talk every Monday and Tuesday on our block schedule. We come in and uh, talk about what we did on the weekend. It's a way to talk about the past tense in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I know some students don't want to share that because I know my students. I know that person. And uh, I won't I won't force them to share just for the sake of language. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's what you had mentioned, the building relationships and not having that zero tolerance policy, a strict guideline in your classroom. And that student will respect you. You know, in and the they'll future. feel like you care about them if you because you're not they're not just another body sitting there right. that you expect to do something. You know, you have a conversation with them. If you notice that they're different or, or uh, not their usual self, then talk to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I that'll that go a yesterday. long way to help them. So whenever this podcast gets actually put out time frame wise, um, yesterday um, in my class or during one of my classes, I should just say, uh, a student came in and I knew they had a problem. And I saw it. The kid didn't say anything. I just observed it. And having spent time with this kid, uh, I could feel that energy. Some of the other classmates could feel that energy. So I decided, and you know I'm desolate, as you can see in my room here. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, we were podcasting in my classroom during, <laughs> our, during our planning periods. This is what we do for our planning periods, right? Uh, day before Thanksgiving, day why not? Day before Thanksgiving, why not? Why not? Um, so we came in, I pulled the desk up, or the not desk, the chairs into a circle, and we just had a conversation and just unpacked some emotions that those kids went through. And uh, I told them, I said, look, we'll just, we'll just give you this time on the front end, you know what I mean, get it off your chest. And the things that unfolded, I, I was just a listener. Mm -hmm. They were taking control and they started conversations amongst themselves. They're like, yeah, this and that, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it was amazing just to sit back and just listen. And I guarantee they were more productive for you afterwards. On the back end, they were a little more productive. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating when you just take time let them, to to let them get it off. Because yeah. what am I going to do? Come in? No. Push those emotions behind, you know? Unfortunately, some people are rigid, and especially in classroom management, where it's no talking, sit up, stay right there. You have to do this. We're not in and it doesn't allow for them to be individuals. And right. I think the more that we allow them to see us, see them as people, they will be more productive and, and care more and want to do more for us. So this segs right into uh, the next question. You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, our students are predominantly African-American, Hispanic, um, and we're both white educators. So as a white educator teaching in the environment, what would you say to other white teachers that desire to teach in a school such as ours? Um, what have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about your whiteness over the years of teaching here? Um, what wisdom do you have for those teachers? Um, what should they know and do before they step into a school like this? Know your community. Be willing to be out in your community. Um, be available. Know different situations and areas of where the kids are coming from and what they talk about. Know what's valued in the community where you teach. You know, is it church or or is it the other things like what can influence them and for me you know I come from a different background than most people would think and so it's not it wasn't as hard for me but I never 
I guess the big thing for me working here is I never had to deal with a lot of the stuff that some of my undocumented Hispanic students deal with. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's brought out a lot of thoughts of a knowing privilege and, and not having to deal with fear. Like I had a conversation with a young lady this morning in reference to this and, and her fear of her mom and her mom being undocumented and how complicated it's become in the last couple of years and the worry that she has. And, and I never had to worry about that. Those kids are living with trauma. Right. And, you know, she's trying to focus on a test and take a test. And in the back of her mind, she's got all this about stuff that. about what am I going to do about college because I can't file for this and I can't do this. And what if they figure out that? Like, I've never had to worry about that. You know, I never had to think about, you know, if I try and do this or if I push for this, is that going to get my mom looked at by ISIS? Is that mm -hmm. going to put her on a radar for this or that? And these kids are having to worry about that. And that's definitely, you know, a part of privilege being thrown at me like, wow. And having to sit and deal with that every day and hold it together. I don't have together. to worry about any of that. We don't have to worry about right. any of that. That reminds me um, about my privilege as being a white man that speaks Spanish. Nobody... F's with me, bleep, uh, when I speak Spanish out in public. I have that privilege. To me, when I speak Spanish, wherever I may be, um, people look at me like, oh, wow, you speak two languages. That's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> Is it tough? Is it hard? Is it, wow. How'd you do that? How'd you, wow, I would love to learn Spanish. Right. But you let a Hispanic person do that in public, and they risk a lot. They, they risk racism. They, uh, they, they risk, risk somebody yelling at them, oh, why are you speaking Spanish here in America? Get what? out of my country. Oh, my God. Get out of my country. So, you know, what What have you learned about, you know, teaching these students over the years that you could share with other teachers? Like you mentioned at the beginning, know your community. Like, mm -hmm. are you saying, like, teachers, like, really need to get out of the classroom and, and, and You do, get and, out and need to be seen and, and go experience things and go support your kids at other things. Like, I've... Um, you know, it's through my nephew. My nephew plays football, but I made sure that I stayed and saw the community band that we had some kids playing in on the field. And it wasn't the field he was playing at, but I stayed and watched them before I went up to his game. And, you know, and I, when I'm out and I was at his game, I went over and spoke to the students that are Carver students that I saw. You know, and they, they loved that. They were like, oh, cool, what are you doing here? And so they were cheering for him and, and wanted him to do good, all because I came up and spoke to him and were like, hey, mm -hmm. who, who do you have here? Is your little brother out here? You know, what's going on? And so that means a lot to the kids, you know, seeing even them seeing you at a grocery store, believe it or not. Them being able to see you in a regular capacity, like, oh, grocery store look at what their you're eating. Right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. out at them. That matters. You're not scared to shop here? You're not scared to shop? No. No, oh, I brother, come stop by all the time. I'm all right. Yeah, yeah. So I think when we think about being culturally, linguistically responsive teachers and the things we can do, we can get bogged down with theory a lot of times and then just forget that the simple things, listening to your students, mm -hmm. being involved in their lives, showing that you care about them, going out into the community, that doesn't take... That doesn't take a lot of work. Mm -mm. I mean, it takes work. You know, I mean, you, there are teachers that may be uncomfortable doing that and, yeah. and overcoming that uncomfortableness with, with going out into the community that's um, foreign to you or alien to you. I get it. It may be a struggle. Um, but that's, that's the only battle. These are the simple things that we can do, and it goes a long way, as we discussed earlier, toward classroom management. 
Mm -hmm. your students see that you care, when they see you on the football field, when they see you around doing things, staying after school, they come in your classroom already knowing Miss Tolliver's got us. She knows what's up, Mm -hmm. right? Am I right or wrong? You're right. And even just knowing the news of what's happened in the area, I mean, that matters a lot. They know I don't live in the area. That's but powerful. if they come in the next day and they can, and I can discuss with them something that I know happened in one of our neighborhood up areas up right up the street. Like, you heard about that too? Yeah. Then that, and you know that helps them get a lot of that off their chest and, and knows that you're actually paying attention to what respect they're dealing with. Our kids know when you when you're being real and when you're not keeping it 100. Mm-hmm. Right? They know if you have stepping. They'll let you know. They will. Right, and they're not going to respect you. They're not going to give you buy-in. They're going to be part of your class. You know, they may go through the motions like a machine, right, if they need to just to do what they need to do to pass your class. However, if they know, you know, like you just said, things that go on in community, you're involved in blah, 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 you got them. Mm-hmm. And I think I think you'll agree with this is our students, our students metaphorically would die for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. They would, they would go – when they defend you like in a heartbeat. Can, when, when they, they feel they, like they can trust you, they got your back. And I've <laughs> I've experienced though experienced that. So ones when they like you said, they know when you've been real and when you actually care about them when you do. And when a new kid comes, was it last year? It was a new kid transferred here to play football. And we there was several of them. We were wait. It was after school. We were getting ready for a pregame because I I deal with the football team. And. I, He'd only been there a week, and he came out his mouth sideways to me, and about four of them about took his top off. <laughs> they were ready to kill him. They're like, don't you ever speak to her that way. Right. Don't, don't you ever talk to her. Yeah. Because, you know, they don't, you, you're part of them. You're, you're family to them. You if build you, a relationship. You build and you help them succeed, whether they're able to be successful or not, just the fact that they know that you tried and you're mm-hmm. there for them. Mm-hmm. Honestly, they'll go to bat for you every day. I won't, I won't mention the person's name, but there's a student – uh, last year that skipped a lot. We've all had it. does exist. But there'd be one thing this kid would do, come out of his way just to dap me up. Uh, dap me up means, uh, for those of you that might not know, give you a handshake, <laughs> right? He'd come by just to give me some dap. And even though he'd never come to my class, he'd be like, what's up, Mr. Jeffers? What's going on? What's just good? Come by right? and check in with you. And, uh, and that, that just meant a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, in that moment, be like, hey, man, you know, we do have class, so... But just that, that alone, it means a lot, right? Respect. It does. You know, not reaching him educationally, right? Because he's not at school, but still, it's amazing. Um, well, I think we're done here. Uh, our planning period is winding down. <laughs> so I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you. You're listening to What in the World Language Podcast. <laughs>